Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can UFOs be seen underwater? Does this mean that whatever they are come from underground bases? Are all aliens really extraterrestrials? Hello and welcome to the 760th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on WOON. 1240 a.m. and 93 FM. 99.3 FM. 99.3 FM. Geez, sorry. We're, we're confused <laughs> I don't, as it is. I don't, I, don't have, I don't have enough coffee in my system just yet. <laughs> so um, this is our 11th year on the air. I'm Ben, and those very watery questions came from a co-host and partner in the paranormal and dad, Paul. And today we bring you another fascinating subject uh, we have de- never dedicated an entire show to before, and uh, we welcome a new guest who is well-known in the UFO field. Or maybe the USO field as well. So we welcome your calls today. 800 I'm sorry, it's uh, 401-766-1240 from anywhere. And you can send emails during and after the show to paul at behindtheparanormal.com for those. Coming to us from sunny California via Skype today is Preston Dennett, who began investigating UFOs and the paranormal in 1986. That was because he found that his family, friends, and co-workers were having dramatic, unexplained encounters. Since then, he has interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> uh, maybe I should start drinking coffee. Unexplained <laughs> encounter. Again, he's interviewed hundreds of witnesses and investigated a wide variety of paranormal phenomena. He is a field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, a ghost researcher, and the author of 13 books and more than 100 articles on UFOs and the paranormal. His writing has been translated into several different languages, and he's appeared on numerous radio and television programs. Additionally, Preston has taught classes on how, on various paranormal subjects and lectures across the United States. His website, Preston Dennett, that's Preston, D-E-N-N-E-T-T, dot Weebly, dot com. So Preston Dennett, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, it's great, great to have you with us. So the first question I want to start with is, where do you find the time to write 13 books? <laughs> yeah, it definitely cuts into my TV time, I can tell you that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're a busy you know, guy. Yeah, I mean, I work full-time. This doesn't pay my bills. So it's yeah, yeah. basically <laughs> weeknights and weekends and uh, whenever I can get a spare moment. Alrighty, so let's let's start off with a sort of a sort of a basis uh, for our discussion. So, when did people uh, begin seeing you know USOs or UFOs underwater? Uh, actually, the history goes way back, um, several hundred years. There wasn't a lot of attention focused to USOs in particular, uh, but we know this phenomena goes way back. Uh, there's reports of Christopher Columbus actually seeing a USO. Uh, the first real attention that was paid to it was probably when Ivan T. Sanderson wrote a book uh, called Invisible Residence, and he devoted some attention to USOs. But other than that, really, no one's been talking about this, uh, not for years and years, until recently, actually. I've got cases dating back here where on the Southern California coast, which is you know where I'm doing most of my research, mm-hmm. uh, dating back, gosh, about a hundred years, some of the earliest cases I could find stretch back to the 1920s. Oh, wow. So, of those cases, what are the most prominent? Oh, you know, I've got 150, <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's hard to pick, you know, which ones are my favorite or which ones are the best, but a good early one, 1947, up in the San Francisco Bay area, 
a bunch of uh, shippers, freighters, were complaining about this undersea reef that was kind of disappearing and appearing and moving around. It was causing a lot of problems with navigation. So the Navy sent up a survey ship to try to track this thing down, whatever it was. And they did. They found it. They tracked it down the coast to Southern California and out to sea about 100, maybe 200 miles. Whatever it was, it was big. It was underwater. They never saw it, uh, but they were able to track it on their depth sounder. Uh, a couple of times they you know, got real close to it and finally it just disappeared. Never saw it again. Hmm. So, so I don't know. I mean, it goes back at least that far. And since 1947, I mean, the, the sightings the, of USOs occur pretty regularly. I mean, uh, not quite yearly, but almost. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if there's there's sort of a um, like, like a cultural kind of thing behind that because in the 1950s and 60s is kind of, and kind of into the 70s is when actually in the late 1940s, really you know UFO sort of reports started kind of like you know skyrocketing. Maybe it was because of you know film culture Roswell something like that, but there was all, there was like a big a big influx of them. That's why I thought it was interesting. You said like reports even back to the 1920s, and you know even you, you know there's always been those ancient reports of um, you know with Christopher Columbus and other various explorers, which you know I I always wondered in ancient cartography. You know you see all these weird creatures and stuff on maps. Like did they actually see these things? Although <laughs> uh, there there were reports that you know they thought manatees were actually like uh, mermaids and stuff but you know uh, i digress so i wonder if there's some sort of cultural aspect to it or is it because you know the ocean is is a sort of un unexplored territory like we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the earth's oceans right well i think it's both i mean certainly these sightings probably were going on a lot longer 1947, there was this huge super wave, you know, with Kenneth Arnold and Roswell and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it swept across the United States and the world and really hasn't stopped. Um, the way I'm looking at it, um, there was nothing like this before 1947. It's unprecedented. Yes, there were waves of sightings, but nothing like what we're seeing now, this kind of high levels of activity that just go on and on. Yeah, it's kind of unprecedented in human history, huh? Right. So I'm thinking, no, it's not really cultural, but there is a huge explosion of awareness on mm. the subject. So, have you yourself ever seen a USO? Uh, no, I have not seen a USO. I've seen UFOs a number of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as something coming in and or out of the water or floating under the water there, I haven't. Interesting. Uh, Gosh, I'd like to, because I've certainly been out there a lot looking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, when I was serving in the Coast Guard, we were deployed in the Caribbean, and uh, we were in San Juan for uh, a few days, better part of a week, actually. And I I would always uh, sort of double dip, um, you know, do any kind of paranormal investigation that was possible uh, while I was uh, deployed in certain areas. Uh, now, this was uh, the mid-80s, actually 1984, and I happened to run into a uh, member of the Puerto Rican legislature who had a rather amazing experience. Now, the, the Mona Passage, <clears throat> and any hardcore UFO buff will be familiar with that, it's um, a rather strange area. It's 
I guess uh, you can consider part of the Bermuda Triangle, so-called. And uh, this particular gentleman was telling me that he and his family were having a cookout one day. He lived on uh, sort of a, uh, a hill overlooking the Mona Passage, which is right, you know, San Juan is right there. And he was, uh, <clears throat> they were just, you know, enjoying their hot dogs or whatever. And all of a sudden, a, a large disc-shaped craft came up out of the water, perhaps a quarter mile from where they were sitting, and just, bang, took off into the sky. Wow. And they all kind of looked at each other. And, uh, you know, I mean, you hear these reports from, you know, highly professional and respected people. Uh, and, and, of course, there's also the story about the um, uh, <coughs> U.S. warship that sits off, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that, that area in the Mona Passage and supposedly is monitoring whatever may be under the water you know, in regard to uh, <coughs> UFOs, that sort of thing. And I actually saw a ship, uh, a U.S. Navy vessels, a destroyer, uh, on station in that area just doing just that and was there the whole time just sitting there. That we were this. I, I, I mean, I can't say that's exactly what it was doing, but it's sort of. You know, I was kind of more of a, a believer after these things than anything than I was previously, because I tend to be very skeptical unless I see things for myself, and even then. So, <clears throat> had you heard much about the Mona Passage, Preston? Uh, that vicinity. I know you worked largely on the West Coast, but uh, the areas of the Caribbean where USOs have been reported. Oh, yeah. I mean, I got reports from across the world. I know Puerto Rico is a huge hotspot in terms of USOs. Yeah. But I, I got reports from the Bermuda Triangle area, Florida. I've got a case from Lake Mikasuki in Florida, a case in uh, outside Hot Springs, Arkansas, on a little lake called Lake Hamilton, um, cases in rivers. I've got a case on the East Coast. I've talked to a lot of people, mostly here on the West Coast, is uh, where... I'm telling you, I mean, this area here off the Southern California coast, it's got to be one of the hottest spots for USOs on our planet. I mean, mile for mile, just the biggest producer of USOs. Okay. So, so that's where I'm getting most of my reports, and I've talked to a lot of people. I mean, some guys, I mean, I've talked to, like, you know, fishermen and, you know, residents and just tourists, but also a lot of Navy guys I've talked to. i talked to a submarine navigator, another guy who was an electrician's mate on a submarine, uh, electronics engineer. He had an encounter in the Mediterranean mm -hmm. uh, back in 1980. So, yeah, all over the world, um, all kinds of people are seeing this stuff, lots of military people. Tell us, well, before I ask you to tell us about some, some of, of the wildest cases you've heard, uh, I just wanted to repeat something. Uh, Mark D'Antonio, a very dear friend of ours, he, he's with MUFON too, I'm sure you know him. Uh, he uh, lives here in New England, but he does uh, some work for the Navy, and he was on a submarine because he couldn't say where, which, which, which submarine it was. And uh, he happened to be, uh, I guess it was in CIC or in the, it was some kind of sonar operator. He overheard um, saying, uh, con sonar, fast mover. Okay. Right. And uh, he said, "What?" Well, and there was this thing doing. I don't know. So I, I don't want to speculate because I can't remember exactly what it was, but some kind of crazy speed underwater. And the captain knew all about it. And uh, he was later talking to. Uh, I should say, uh, Mark was later talking to a uh, high-ranking uh, naval officer of, of flag rank, and he was saying, uh, "Can you tell me about the fast mover program?" And the man was a little bit taken aback, but he said, um, I can't talk about that. In other words, there is such a program, but I can't talk about it, which was, of course, a proper answer, but it 
told Mark that there was something going on. So uh, have you ever heard of that program? Uh, yeah, I've heard about this. I heard about Antonio's story. Uh, you know, officially we've got submarines that move about 50 knots or so. Yeah, um, that's, that's classified, yeah. Right. Um, but, yeah, they, apparently we've got stuff that can move a little bit faster than that, maybe up to twice as fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure we've got anything that can move much faster than that. And I've got some reports. You know, most of the USO reports, they're not super fast moving. Um, there's some that kind of just meander along a little bit, um, some that are underwater and just staying there, uh, some that move at about 50 to 100 knots, and a, you know, a small smattering of cases, though, where these objects are moving underwater, guys, that, you know, just like you see a UFO in the sky, darting from one side to another, 1,000 miles per hour, a mm-hmm. couple of cases like that underwater. I mean, I talked to one group of people, they were in uh, Topanga Canyon Beach, <clears throat> this is, you know, right near Malibu, Santa Monica, they're looking off the coast there, they see these things underwater, and just darts away, off out to sea, in a flash. Had to be well over 500 miles an hour. Wow. Underwater. Really amazing. So, now, now, were you saying that, that we have... <clears throat> okay, no, I, I, I got what you're saying. All right, um, so tell us some... Um, some individual cases that you that were that particularly strike you as uh, pretty spectacular. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of them. August eighth, nineteen fifty four. I love this one. The Japanese steamship Aliki is off the coast of Long Beach when s- several crew members see this fireball come swooping down and hits the water, goes underwater, travels underwater a little bit, comes up out of the water, takes off. Clearly not a fireball, because. Um, we don't have anything ourselves either that can do that sort of maneuver. That uh, we know great, of. Right. It's a great yeah. case. There's only a few cases like that where someone sees an object actually go into the water and, and come out. Most of these cases are people seeing stuff dive in or maybe come swooping out or just moving around underwater or floating there in a few cases. But that that's definitely a good case. Another favorite case... January 15, 1956, a bunch of people are on the beach on Redondo Beach and see this, this is, you know, in the evening, they see this glowing disc-shaped object, maybe 20 feet across, orange, come gliding down and it hits the water a couple of hundred yards out, a couple of hundred yards out to sea. And uh, they're watching it, a crowd's beginning to gather and this thing sinks beneath the waves. It's got this big glowing orange color it's causing all this frothing and bubbles and it just goes deeper and deeper by this point uh there's policemen showing up to watch it from two neighboring counties there's lifeguards there's night watchmen there's a huge crowd of people watching this thing the navy actually sends out a little boat and go go right over this thing and they can see yeah it's about 20 feet across finally it just disappears the next morning the navy sends out another boat to look for it and they've got Geiger counters you know to test for radiation can't find it it's apparently gone and uh, got some publicity so the Coast Guard ended up issuing an explanation calling it a light buoy a buoy with a light on it and that it wasn't a UFO oh that's plausible Um, isn't it (laughs) yeah I mean the UFO researchers pounced right on that Leonard Stringfield uh, Itabel Epperson um totally ridiculed this explanation because there's just no way. I mean, this object, by the 
Navy's own description was 20 feet across. And this light buoy, they have a picture of it, they held it up for the media. <laughs> it's maybe a foot across. It's a ridiculous explanation and it doesn't even yeah. come close to accounting for the evidence. Not nautical equivalent of swamp gas. <laughs> exactly. Or the flying lighthouse at Rendlesham and that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, there's so many cases. I found a bunch of cases where boaters, this is kind of creepy and I don't know, it fascinates me, where boaters are specifically targeted by these objects. There was a case in 1980, this is again in the same area, this is a little bit to the north, this area is kind of, I'm going to say from Santa Barbara at the north end, down, going south to Long Beach, San Clemente, a good stretch of, you know, 100 miles or so, mm -hmm. and 26 miles out to sea between Catalina and the mainland. This is where almost all this activity is going on. I charted it. And one case, 1980s, this guy, he's an electronics engineer, has his own fully equipped boat. It's uh, at night. It's a very misty night. And he sees this green glow ahead of him in the water. Doesn't look like a shit. Doesn't look like anything he's recognized. So he does the right thing. He stops his boat. Doesn't want to collide with it. And this thing comes right up to him. And he realizes it's underwater. Um, it's, he's thinking maybe 300 feet in diameter. Couldn't quite tell. But it was went right under his boat. And uh, he's trying to get a you know, depth sounder on it. And takes a couple of readings and looks to be about 100 feet deep below his boat. At this point, both his depth sounders quit functioning. He looks at his compasses. All three of them are slowly rotating. <gasps> Um, he tries to call the Coast Guard. The radio is dead. His entire electronics system goes down. He's terrified at this point. And finally, this thing, whatever it is, moves off, um, scaring the daylights out of him. Hmm. But, but only one case of many like that where boaters are out there in the water and things come right up under their boat and kind of just hang out there. Well, I heard a story, and this is from 1982, and it was one of the larger Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard icebreakers. They were, as, as I, it was told to me, and this is by an officer of the vessel, you know, it wasn't some, some guy just out of boot. It was um, a, they were about 500 miles or so north of McMurdo Sound, headed for Antarctica. They were, they were going to winter over, as, as we called it. And there was a, it was at night, there was a huge light. Now, in southern waters, you know, tropical waters, you've got phosphorescence and stuff, but th this was south of, too far south to be tropical. And uh, it was a huge, it, it described it as a glob of light. So when I asked, is it, you mean like a light ball? You see how kind of like a ball of light with, with rough, you know, with, with um, kind of like fuzzy edges. Came right at great speed, slowed down, passed right under the ship, and and then out, and and the uh, I'm surprised the collision alarm didn't sound because uh, they said they did. They, they, he said they did pick it up uh, on sonar when, when it went under the vessel, but no sound, no disturbance of the water. But um, you know he he reported it to the captain who was not on the bridge at the time. He was the officer of the deck actually at the time, but was telling me this, and um, never heard any more about it. Which is what you do, you know, it goes up the chain of command, and you don't hear any more about it. So uh, I don't know that that kind of struck me. That was really a very strange story, and not not, not one I had heard a lot of. Now the Shag Harbor incident. Ben, I don't want to step on your if you have questions. Oh no, it's fine. I was going to save them for after the break. Okay, 
Uh, right, we get about five minutes. Uh, the Shag Harbor incident uh, off Nova Scotia, Canada. Now we have family there, and they remember some of the the old timers uh, have said that they remembered or they remembered their fathers uh, or mothers being, you know, sort of standing on the shore watching the Navy and the RCMP and everybody who was looking for this underwater object that landed. And friends of theirs who actually saw it land in the water. And this is 1960, I don't, I don't want to speculate, I can't remember offhand, 62, 63, uh, early on. Uh, but you probably know better than I do, Preston. But what, what have you heard about that case? Can you talk about that one? Oh, yeah, I certainly know about it. It's probably the best hands-down USO case out there just because it's got so many witnesses uh, it's got the Navy yeah, involved. our there's, relatives. <laughs> <laughs> there's official documentation of it. Um, there's more than one object. It went on for a period of days. Uh, it's undeniable that something was down there. Uh, really interesting case. I don't know. I don't have any real first-hand information about it mm-hmm. uh, other than what's already out there. Yeah. Uh, but I certainly do know about it, and it's a fantastic case. Exactly, and as you say, it went on for days. Uh, the U.S. Navy came in, uh, the RCMP and uh, Canadian Navy were involved as well. Everybody was searching for this thing and apparently uh, followed it as it moved underwater out into the Bay of Fundy uh, and farther down, I, I should say, uh, out of the Bay of Fundy and into the Gulf of Maine, um, which is, because they're adjacent to each other. Uh, but you have a very large body of water out there, and having served in the Coast Guard and uh, partially, at times in New England here, um, it's an awful lot of water out there. So it's it's they they were tracking it, and uh, it's been very difficult to find out any uh, specific details, even after all these years. But but certainly a remarkable case. Um, yeah. What about cases in other countries th- that you've studied? Uh, can you give us a few examples of those? Um, yeah, I mean, well, there's one that comes to mind. I spoke to a Coast Guard captain. It was a really wonderful opportunity because. Um, Boy, when you get hold of a military witness, a trained observer, someone who's familiar with advanced aircraft, it's definitely a plus, a yes. bonus. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy was a very lucid interview, great uh, guy, and was with three other guys in a na- former Navy boat. It was decommissioned, uh, but it used to be a sonar boat. Um, no longer had sonar on it. And it was just, you know, not a huge boat. It was like, you know, 50 feet across or so. Uh, 50 feet long, and uh, they had survived this terrible, terrible storm. They thought for sure they were going to sink and lose their lives. It was that close. This is out in the Haiti area. Oh, yeah. I know those waters. (laughs) And they were, you know, they had survived the storm. It was finally over, and it was still pretty rocky out there. And uh, they're uh, looking for a port to come in and take shelter for a little while and just recover. And are coming into the you know the Haiti area, and uh, are pulling in and still you know out, out at sea quite a ways. When there's these things under their boat, and they gave me a description I've only heard a few times of these objects, which they couldn't tell how big they were, but they were at least 20 feet across. There was multiple objects, and they were all donut shaped. They were hmm. glowing. <laughs> I mean, just like a donut, but a glowing tubes of blue light and big and they were wherever their boat would go these things would light up underneath um, they were clearly mechanical or artificially constructed he's talking to me he's like is there any jellyfish you know is there anything that could possibly look like this 
and you know I, I looked I certainly looked to see if I could find any sort of sea life that would mimic this appearance but no there's no perfectly formed you know donut shaped jellyfish that glow bright blue light out there no. there, there just isn't and he saw 20 or 30 of these objects. All, you know, all the guys in the boat saw him. It was very emotional for them. One guy got very frightened, uh, had a huge emotional reaction to it. Uh, they didn't know what these things were. They're, they were just flash on and off somewhere much deeper and looked smaller, somewhere pretty close to the boat, maybe, gosh, 20 feet um, down. And uh, eventually just sort of petered out and stopped appearing until I got into the actual port there um this is not a, a port with a you know a dock or anything this is completely isolated and one of these things comes scooting up right up to their boat and disappears freaking them huh. out okay uh, well we're going to take our bottom of the hour break but I, I have some more on that you you led right into my next question preston anyway we're listening to behind the paranormal with paul and ben eno on woon 1240 a.m and 99.3 fm in new england's beautiful blackstone river valley fascinating show today with researcher preston and author preston dennett on underwater ufos we'll be right back Hello, this is Manny Brando. And this is Virginia. We're here to tell you our new showtime is one hour later, Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10. Oh, good. I can sleep another hour. You do, and you'll be late for breakfast. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. And here we are back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul. Our guest today, Preston Dennett, and our subject, USOs, underwater um, unidentified submerged objects, I believe that means. And we're talking with Preston Dennett today. And uh, let's continue, Ben. You have some. Uh, oh, I have. To carry right on here. I have some pretty, pretty. Uh, I can't. I can't think of a good pun. I was going to say soggy questions. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, so what I'm. No, I, I thought. I thought I had something, and then I lost it. Anyway, I'll come up with You're a pun. About bases. Well, yes, I was going to talk about bases. Uh, so I, I was trying to come up with a, with a funny witticism uh, to segue into it, and, you know, I just couldn't think of one. So one thing that kind of goes hand-in-hand, hand, uh, Preston, is, you know, the, the idea of underwater bases, right? You know, um, whenever anyone talks about USOs, you know, underwater bases is inevitably brought up. So I, I, I figure, you know, we could take this last half hour and kind of discuss them a little bit. So do you believe there are actually underwater bases? Um, yeah, you know, I do. And I didn't come to that conclusion easily. Uh, when I started investigating UFOs back in 1986, I immediately started getting underwater UFO reports uh, here off the Southern California coast, mostly. And they started adding up. And at some point, I'm like, okay. I paid attention to them. I looked into them specifically. And my first real data point pointing towards the possibility of an undersea base was just the sheer number of accounts. Um, what I'm looking at is over 150 accounts in a very s- specifically defined area stretching back over a very long period of time and occurring to the present day. So what is it about this area that is causing all these USO reports? Um, and this is when I first began to speculate. Uh, I know that other researchers in this area, like uh, Robert Stanley, Ann Druffel, Bill Hamilton, Barbara Lamb, Yvonne Smith, all knew about this long before I did and called it a hot spot. 
So it's pretty, it's very well known among locals. And that was my first real data point pointing towards something is down there. Uh, not a base, a parking lot at the very least of these USOs. So I mean, over the last few years, we kind of had the whole uh, the whole base off the coast of Malibu, right? That that's kind of like one of the one of the most widely publicized ones. At least you know it made it into Huffington Post, so I'll just assume that. Um, so it's kind of controversial. You know, you had you know a couple of different researchers saying, "Yeah, it's a base." You know, um, Jimmy Church was was all about it, calling it the Holy Grail of ufology. And then you had you know some I, th- I think his name was David Schwartz, who was the geologist, who said, "Oh well, you know, it's just part of the." Part of the, uh, the the I think it was like the continental shelf or something like that. Um, right. So what's what's your opinion on it? Do you think it's actually a base? Do you th- what what do you think about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking about the Malibu anomaly. It's this weird looking structure like thing. It's off the coast of Malibu, and th- this appeared. Gosh, I would already been researching the subject for years and years and years before this came out, and uh, it's got got some weird things to it it's got a really flat top it's got these big huge column pillars type things and what appears to be a tunnel i mean if you look on google images some of these images clearly show a tunnel some don't though um so there's kind of contradictory information coming through google earth uh what i find interesting is this you know i charted all these sightings and thinking well there's something down there there's something in this area and lo and behold this thing appears exactly in the center of all the activity that kind of gave me a thrill when I saw that I'm like wow you know I was kind of expecting something to be there and here it is so I'm a little on the fence about it because it is an earthquake fault it's called Sycamore Knoll the geologists are very skeptical that there's anything down there but I don't know Prior to this, I was also contacted by a number of people who said, oh, you know about the tunnels, right? I'm like, no, what tunnels? <laughs> um, and they're like, yeah, yeah. And I got this from multiple sources, by the way, telling me that there is a tunnel coming out into the Santa Catalina Trench here, the, uh, the San Pedro uh, Channel. Hmm. And they, they say it leads actually coming out from here, going all the way to uh, Edwards Air Force Base, underwater. <laughs> And going from there, get this to Area 51 in Nevada. That's a long tunnel. Yeah, right? You know, actually, we have a question on this very subject uh, from Phil in Orange, Massachusetts. Yeah, so he, you kind of answered the first question, which was, has has the case, well, yeah, because that's, yeah, Santa Monica and Malibu are like right next to each other, because that's the Santa Monica Bay, I believe. Anyway, uh, so he he, uh, writes to us. Uh, three questions. So the first one, which we kind of already answered, was, has the case of the alleged undersea base off of Santa Monica been dismissed as a natural formation to Mr. Dennett's satisfaction, to which the answer is no. Uh, so the second question is, um, is there any uh, Navy ship which has drawn as much UFO attention as the FDR aircraft carrier used to? Uh, absolutely. I think what I'm seeing is ships that are associated with nuclear power in any way to attract this kind of stuff. Anything that's got a lot of technology to it. Uh, there's one case, gosh, it's one of my favorite cases. This is not in off the Southern California coast. This is on the East Coast in 1970, I believe it was. The guy I interviewed, his name was uh, Ray Sachs. And he was an electrician's mate on the USS Klamagar. Uh, he was on a number of other subs, but as soon yeah, as he got into the Klamagar, uh, this started attracting UFOs. Now, the Klamagar carried nuclear missiles, and I think this is why. And he's out there 
on watch one evening. He's on the deck. The submarine's going up the east coast at around 12 knots. He's on deck with another petty officer. The captain is up there, the second in command, just these four guys moving along at 12 knots on the surface of the sea when this object comes zooming up at about 100 knots real fast. I mean, that's like freeway speed. Mm. Um, from the stern and comes right up alongside the Klamagar, 20, 50 feet off, real close. Um, I mean, you just don't get that close to another vessel at sea. And uh, this thing started to pace the Klamagar for about 15 minutes. Now, was the Klamagar well, riding on the surface at the time, or was she submerged? It was on the surface. Okay. And uh, this object was not on the surface. It was below the water, maybe not very deep. They couldn't really tell, but it was very bright maybe 100 feet down, maybe 50 feet across, circular, bright white light. The captain turns to Ray, the guy interviewed, and says, well, what do the sonar guys see? You know, do they see it? And he calls the sonar, and they're like, no, what, what are you seeing? We don't see anything on sonar. And so one by one, all the upper officers go up on deck, because they want to see this thing with their own eyes. Mm. Um, and they take a quick look at it, and like, huh, don't know what it is. Go back below. So it's causing this huge buzz on the ship. Ray and the other watch guy, they're talking back and forth. What could it be? Oh, my God. The second in command says, will you guys shut up? Turns to the captain, and you know, finally this thing moves off, and the second in command turns to the captain and says, well, you know, wh how do you want me to report this in the log? And the captain turns to him and says, officers who report this sort of thing do not move up in rank. Hmm. So it wasn't recorded in the log. I have to believe the captain told his superiors at some point, because that's why they're out there. You never know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've heard conflicting stories from senior officers, albeit Coast Guard and Army, uh, not in the Navy. Um, the Navy seems to be in the center of a lot of this UFO stuff for some reason. But, uh, no, I mean, th that sounds very similar to what happened to the, uh, the icebreaker I was talking about before. Yeah, um, there's another case, the USS Long Beach. This was off the Southern California coast. Oh, the um, guided missile cruiser, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it attracted UFOs, too, USOs. Um, the guy I talked to was an officer on the ship and described how these lights came just on the far side of Catalina Island where they were patrolling. And uh, they saw these huge bright lights, and no one knew what they were. They were pulsating on and off. The whole ship was just in an uproar. Uh, it was not appearing on radar or sonar, um, but they could definitely see these things, and they were massive. And I, again, I think that's that pattern of you know the, these objects being attracted to our technology. Hmm. Uh, there's a third yes, question from the third, the third and final question from Phil, uh, which is: uh, Lastly, do we know any more about the research the Navy performs at Andros Island, or is the AUTEC facility as opaque as ever? <laughs> Yeah, I wish I knew more about it. There's a very active cover-up on this subject. Um, it's still going on. Absolutely. Our military knows way, way more about this than they're letting on. Um, I do think we have UFO technology and are flying them around to some extent. So, And if you look back into this particular area of research, well, we were looking into flying submarines back in the 60s and trying to develop some of these stuff. So I have to believe we've gone a little bit farther than we're being publicly told. I don't think we have uh, the sort of things that 
the UFOs can do now. And the reason I, I mean, there's a lot of military in this area. Yeah. Uh, there's there's Point Magoo Naval Base. There's San Clemente Island. There's uh, Seal Beach Naval Weapons Station. Uh, there's the L.A. Airport right there. Uh, but I am sure it's not military for a number of reasons. Uh, one being it stretches back a hundred years, and the reports that go back that far are still pretty modern. And by that I mean we've got objects that are saucer-shaped and darting around. They're silent. They're going in and out of the water way back, you know, in the 40s before the military was well-developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the witnesses themselves are military. And beyond that, these objects are chasing cars down the road. They're hovering over boats. They're putting on displays in front of stunned witnesses. This is completely contrary to how the military operates. Right. They don't test their aircraft over population centers. They just don't. It's not military. Okay. Before we get into uh, some of the deeper questions that I had, uh, what do you know about the uh, the Lake Baikal in Siberia, uh, the sightings in 1982? Lake Baikal it, is really huge, just more like an inland sea, and there have been a lot of strange things there. Yeah, deepest. I think it's the deepest lake in the world. Um, a lot of activity Well, I think it's the there. second deep, but, but it's the largest lake in that part of the world, certainly. Oh, yeah. The largest lake in Russia. Um, and uh, got a lot of USO, UFO activity, uh, and humanoids. <laughs> just um, They're underwater without a UFO or USO. Um, I'm certainly aware wow. that I don't have any first-hand reports. Um, I haven't really looked into it in terms of researching it in depth. Uh, but I see what yeah, you did there. I, depth, about it. I like that. Yeah. I guess. Well, anyway, uh, that went by us. But the uh, the whole notion, uh, Preston, of of what these things may be. Um, we, you know, we always assume that UFOs and by extension USOs are craft from other planets, uh, piloted by people from other planets, or something from other planets. Yeah, you know, th- that that's I suppose as plausible as any other explanation, but. I think we need to look beyond that. There's been some speculation that I happen to be interested in about these being UFOs or USOs, and, you know, or both, being, or at least some of them being living things because they act like it at times. Uh, even the, the orbs that, that turn, and you, you do other paranormal search as well, the ubiquitous orbs that turn up, everybody says, aha, spirits. Well, they might, you know, there might be plasma-based life forms, something that Carl Sagan himself, uh, Speculated about, and that astrobiologists talk about sometimes. What do you? What are the chances in in your experience and uh, in your research that that at least some of these things underwater or above water could be living things of them, you know, in, in and of themselves? Right. Well, I'm not going to rule it out. I think the evidence really, sh- the theory that best fits the evidence is extraterrestrial craft in the classic sense. Okay. And I think that's what most witnesses conclude that they're seeing, uh, whether they're from other planets or have been around here and have bases here forever. Really hard to say. I don't think that most of these are what we would call biological creatures, um, known or unknown. Um, could be some of them are. There are a lot of cases here, and I'm not going to say that every one of these is an extraterrestrial craft. Uh, some of them might be natural phenomena. Some could be creatures. Uh, but, oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, well, none of us really people are seeing, Yeah, People are seeing metallic craft. That's yeah, the thing. Yeah. And people are seeing humanoids. And the evidence really points towards these being extraterrestrials or biological beings. Hmm. 
But you know what? There's technology out there that some a lot of people in who have had contact or taken on board a craft say, talk about this sort of thing like the craft seems biological or it's responsive or it has skin that heals. There might be, you know, a technology that's integrated with biology in ways that we don't understand. Sure. Um, so why not have some a living craft? That's definitely something that's possible that we can't rule out. Because uh, and here's another thing that really bothers me about this area in particular and in general is the huge variety of shapes of these objects. I was going to ask that. Yeah, there's so many different kinds, seemingly. Right. I mean. We've got our own cars, which come in various shapes, but they're generally the same shape. Yeah, more or less, yeah. And all our vehicles, you know, follow a pretty tight pattern in terms of planes or ships or what have you. UFOs, no. And in this area, I've got every conceivable shape you could imagine. Honest to God, I mean, it's not just spheres and triangles or saucers. It's everything. I've got rectangular craft, um, hexagonal. Mm-hmm. Weirdly shaped blobs of light, like you were talking, donuts, uh, manta ray shapes. It goes on and on. Weird clouds, glowing clouds. Uh, I don't know what to make of it. Cylindrical ships, cigar shaped, uh, very small little probe-like objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, and this leads right into my next. Uh, thought or question here, and I'm thinking of uh, Ted Phillips from Missouri, who is a legend as far as uh, physical evidence for UFO landings and and that sort of thing. And he's been on the show many times, and in in recent years he's speculated that the the nature of these UFOs, in his case, are, are changing, is changing. In the sense that, you know, years ago people would see more, uh, as you say, uh, metallic craft, uh, so things that were quite obviously or at least seemed to be nuts and bolts, uh, particularly the, you know, landing gear and all this. But that in uh, the past 15 to 20 years, the nature has changed to more like these globs of light, uh, or things that seem, um, you know, perhaps a semi-biological, perhaps, or extremely responsive and less like nuts and bolts stuff. And my question is, you know, has has that same pattern been seen in USOs as well? I mean, has has the nature changed uh, from from your perspective from more nuts and bolts to something that might be more than that? No, no, and I, huh, you know, I don't really agree with that characterization. Okay, I don't see that pattern really. I th- I think what we're seeing is a, an increase of awareness, and perhaps there is an escalation of activity. Uh, as well, I think probably there's both of that going on. I don't think the UFOs are going to go away. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing a steady, if slow, increase in activity. And like I said, I mean, there's just this huge variety. I'm still getting lots of metallic craft, and it's really hard for me to walk away, f- you know, to walk away from the ET explanation, the nuts and bolts craft mm-hmm. a theory. That this is what we're dealing with. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think probably, I mean, these craft can can move interdimensionally. Uh, they can shrink in size. You know, they can have force fields around them. They can turn invisible. They've got all kinds of powers that seem interdimensional and magical, mm-hmm. which you can't conclude that something is, you know, performing magic just because it's doing something we don't understand. Right, or right. That it's 
yeah. biological or interdimensional or what have you. I mean, we ourselves are interdimensional beings. Absolutely. And physics has shown that there are other dimensions. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing, speculating, that these craft have mastered a lot of this, understand it to, in ways that we don't, and are able to do things that look like they're, you know, shrinking down and disappearing. Wouldn't we love to master are. that too? Wouldn't we love to weaponize that? And I think we're, we're studying that ourselves. Could uh, could some or all, well, no, maybe not all, but could some of the USO story, is it, what I'm thinking of here, Preston, is, is that during World War II and uh, subsequently there were, the British uh, military was doing experiments with SEALs. Uh, so they get them to carry you know, ordinance to targets or something you know, underwater. And uh, they actually released stories of lake monsters in order to cover up the actual experiments. And they fostered stories of, you know, the, the, a lot of the lake monster things, maybe not Loch Ness, but some of the smaller lakes in that area in the UK that we hear even about today. Is it possible, in your opinion, that uh, some, of, at least some of the USO reports that might be Fostered in order to cover up actual military military experiments. Um, certainly, I mean we know the government will go through great lengths to ridicule and deny and obfuscate reports. Uh, and here's another thing that I just have to bring up: uh, off the coast here, there are, are a number of sea serpent reports. Hmm. And what I what I found very interesting, and, and the witnesses are outstanding. I mean, the inventor of the cox reel, the head of the tuna fishing club, some really great witnesses in large groups watching this stuff up and down the coast. The vast majority of these sea serpent sightings in terms of California are in northern California, though, hmm. towards the Monterey Trench, which okay. is really deep and very biologically diverse and has all kinds of uh, activity going on there in terms of, you know, fish. <laughs> uh, so some of them possibly... Okay. I mean, I think people are seeing actual sea serpents, and some of these reports could be used to mislead people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh, I don't know. No, I mean, anything I is possible. Into lake monsters as well. I mean, we've got all kinds of lake monsters here in California, Lake Elsinore, yeah. uh, Lake Tahoe. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff going on. Well, that's that's fascinating. Now, uh, I don't know if Ben had another question at this point, but uh, I had another one. Uh, what? Oh, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, Preston, you investigate, as we do, other areas of the paranormal, and I don't know if you know much about our work, but we see a lot of connection, possible connections, you know, through, as you say, the parallel worlds idea uh, between uh, things that are, were not traditionally associated, you know, Bigfoot and ghosts, uh, ghosts right. and UFOs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Do you see, uh, as an investigator of other areas, connections between the USO or UFO sightings and other areas of the paranormal, particularly in areas, you know, for, say, for example, you have globs of light appearing in the water, uh, reports of these things watching vessels. Uh, are, there, are there other paranormal phenomena that are occurring in that area that you know about? Yeah, there is a connection, in, and I'm baffled by it and disturbed, and I'm trying to figure it out uh, because I've got a smattering of reports where people see a UFO and have a Bigfoot encounter at the same time. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, but most Bigfoot reports don't involve UFOs. So I'm like, gosh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I'll have people who have, you know, abductions and visitations, and then they'll have a poltergeist breakout. Precisely, yep. I'm like, okay. Yeah, and that's, we, we work with um, Kathy Marden and Denise Stoner on those cases as consultants sometimes, you know. And uh, so, no, I mean, we're just as, uh, 
Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I think if you're not confused, you have to be sort of uh, self, kind of, um, I don't know, uh, a little arrogant, because <laughs> it is very confusing. Right. I, I think it's a mistake to ignore these things. You have to look into it. You're not going to solve any mysteries by ignoring the evidence. Sure. And, uh, you know, there's the San Luis Valley in Colorado. Oh, yeah. Legend. Very active area. Yeah. Chris, Christopher O'Brien talks about all these UFO encounters, and it's got a lot of paranormal, too. And that's what I found with the Topanga Canyon, Santa Monica Mountain area. Mm-hmm. This is where all this activity is going on. And gosh, the ghosts there are very active in terms of hauntings, religious miracles, cryptozool- cryptozoology. It's all mashed up yep. To, yep. to a certain extent. Sure. I'm still going to say that these are separate phenomena. You know, abductions are not near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bigfoot and UFOs may be related, but it's peripheral. It's a loose connection at best. Maybe it's just the, uh, maybe it's the process by which they manifest is similar or the same. Or maybe there's areas more conducive to, like the veil between the worlds, or something about it allows yeah, maybe, paranormal sure. activity to yeah. manifest more easily. Yeah, uh, we're coming out of the wire here, Preston. I want to give you a chance to talk about your website and your books and where people can find out more about you. Oh, appreciate it. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me on the show. I oh, really great appreciate the opportunity. And uh, yeah, my website, if you just Google my name, it should take you there. The actual address is PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. Got all my books there, excerpts. Um, anyone who's got a story to share or a comment or just want to talk about this, I'm always open to that. You can contact me through my website. I'm working on new stuff all the time. So yeah, having lots of fun with this subject. Great. And just before we go, uh, what uh, what are you working on right now? What, what what's your big uh, big thrust at this point? Uh, I'm putting out a new version of my book, UFO Healings. Actually, it's a completely separate book. Um, that book covered about was my first book. Covered a hundred cases of people who have had a physiological improvement hmm. as a result of a UFO encounter. Interesting. Had a, yeah. had about a hundred cases. I've got three hundred at this point. So I'm working on that. I'm putting out a series of books called Not From Here which are the various articles I've written over the years, and uh, another book about very close encounters. So, yeah, I've got lots of information to, I still want to get out there. Well, that's great. Well, you've written more books than we have, so yeah. uh, that's uh, pretty impressive. <laughs> that's good. Preston, thank you so much. Uh, great show. We'll be in touch off the air. And, uh, again, uh, have fun out there in paradise, and uh, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you, guys. Okay. All right, Preston Dennett, everyone. Okay, on uh, Columbus Day weekend, October 5th and 6th, that's only two weeks from now, uh, we, along with many of the great guests you have heard on this show, will be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Ben and I will speak twice uh, on Friday evening, traditionally Bigfoot night at this conference. Our subject will be Bigfoot, Flesh and Blood, or something else. Uh, on Saturday, we'll address, with or without UFOs, what exactly is an alien? Find out more at NewEnglandUFO.com. And then we'll be back at uh, the Danbury, Connecticut Public Library once again on Saturday, October 13th uh, for the third annual Western Connecticut UFO Conference. So uh, watch out on BehindTheParanormal.com for more information about that, or you can visit DanburyLibrary.org in case it doesn't rhyme enough for you. <laughs> now, I have to tell you that we've been looking, a lot of people have been looking forward to our September 30th show, uh, Tribute to Stanton Friedman. Uh, unfortunately, something uh, came up in our own family. Uh, n- nothing bad. It's just, well, I, 
it was a uh, an event that we we really must attend, and it's going to be on that Sunday. So we're, we're going to have to uh, postpone that show. Uh, we put that out over social media, and uh, we're working with Stanton Friedman now to find out a, another date for him. It will probably be in January. Uh, we will let you know. But again, uh, sorry for that. Uh, that will be a rerun that day. Uh, we're going to have uh, Nick uh, Redfern back talking about uh, a number of his amazing things. It'll be a, a rebroadcast of the, of the June seventeenth show. And uh, that'll be interesting, too, but we will not be live that day. <clears throat> so, um, anyway, my next book, uh, da- Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, and Parallel Worlds, has gone to the publisher. I'm told it won't be released for another year, uh, but the, the Schiffer books fall in winter 2019-2020 catalog, but we'll keep you posted on that. Maybe they'll get uh, frisky and move it up, I don't know. So our uh, 2016 book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is finally available as an ebook on Amazon, Kindle, and Apple iTunes, and it's available in stores, too. And one other thing I have to mention, uh, yesterday I was privileged uh, to be uh, invited to the um, to uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts, where a new gravestone was being uh, unveiled at the lovely Hilldale Cemetery in that great town uh, in honor of, of, of Charles W. Tryout Smith, uh, Tryout being a nickname. Uh, and there's a kind of a long story behind this, but he was a friend of H.P. Lovecraft's, and I was invited because I was the closest they could, they could find to a Lovecraft relative, because we are distant cousins. Uh, not very close, but still. Uh, it was uh, just a great honor to be there. A lot of uh, great things, and I wanted to particularly thank Tom Spidaleri, who uh, organizes just about so many things in, in paranormal events, and he's a, uh, a pillar of the community there, a wonderful, quiet, self-effacing guy, and he has pretty much uh, worked uh, to save the Hilldale Cemetery, which was all overgrown and things of this kind, and and, uh, he uh, organized this event uh, to honor this um, uh, printer uh, and slash writer in uh, Haverhill who was uh, published some of Lovecraft's early uh, poems, things of this kind, and uh, it was really just just great to be there. There were were a lot of people, and uh, we toured some historic properties. It was just Thank you, Tom, and thank you, everybody in Haverhill, for your hospitality and for all the great things you're doing there. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm a little upset I wasn't, wasn't able to make it yesterday, but it sounds like a great day. It was. It was well, there'll be other opportunities. Oh, of course. Yeah, Tom's right. always doing something. Sure. So uh, what's our website there, Ben? What do we got? We don't have a website. I'm just kidding. We do. It's don't behind say the, that. <laughs> it's BehindTheParanormal.com. On that website, you can find um, out more about our show and uh, many our many cases over the years, public appearances, etc. And you can find nearly 800, actually it's probably about 800 now, uh, free and recorded shows from our 10 years on the air, including our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And also on the, our website, that, and NewEnglandGhosts.com, uh, you'll find direct links to several charities that Ben and I have adopted, including USACares.org, Canadian Veterans Adv- Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Now, as I say, we know the people who run these things, and they're, they're just uh, terrific. What do we got next week, Ben? Alrighty, real quick, on uh, September 30th, we're going to be having, um, a, which my father already mentioned, that we're doing, doing a replay of our show with uh, uh, from June 17th with Nick Redfern on Slenderman and other startling visions here on WOON 1240 AM and 99.3 FM. So that's about all we have time for. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you behind the paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.